The Inksa Horizons podcast. Conversations at the intersection of science, society, and public policy. Welcome to the Inksa Horizons podcast. I'm Naomi Simon-Kumar. Humans, it seems, have always wanted to know the future. We've consulted the stars, oracles, and witches. Also computational models, prediction markets, and TEDx futurists. When it comes to policymaking, time, money, and lives can be saved if you're able to make informed and proactive policy. That is, if you can identify and preempt or mitigate harms before they happen. Or conversely, if you can identify and seize opportunities ahead of the curve. To build an idea of what the future might look like, we tend to turn to historical patterns and to science. Both the social and natural sciences are powerful tools for understanding why and how things have happened in the past. But trying to predict the future means working with probabilities and contingencies. Uncertainty may be reduced, but it can't be eliminated. So join us as we peer into the world of strategic foresight and concepts such as radical incrementalism, strategic opportunism, paradoxical thinking, and constructive ambiguity. At our recent biennial global conference, Inksa hosted a distinguished panel on the role that science and science advice plays in strategic foresight, featuring Professor Francisco Sagasti, academic, author, and former president of Peru. Jeanette Quick, head of the Centre for Strategic Futures at the Prime Minister's Office in Singapore. Dr. Claire Nelson, a sustainability engineer and chief ideation leader at the Futures Forum. And Dr. Martin Mueller, executive director of the Academic Forum at the Geneva Science and Diplomacy Anticipator. Your host is Jeff Kinder, Executive Director of Science and Innovation at the Institute on Governance in Canada. Take it away, Jeff. Welcome to this session on interrogating foresight. It's my understanding that this may be actually the first time that foresight has been an explicit focus at INCSA, so we're very excited to be listening to these fine panelists over the next 45 minutes. My name is Jeff Kinder. I'm a longtime public servant in the Canadian and uh, U.S. governments in science policy and innovation policy and have dabbled uh, in foresight throughout my career, but by no means an expert. So we're very fortunate to have our four guests today. All right, so I wanted to get right into it and explain first quickly that uh, Crystal Vandelaust of Policy Horizons had hoped to be the moderator today. Unfortunately, because of the Canadian federal election, the Policy Horizons team had to had to step back, and so I'm stepping in. But let me just start with a point that she raised in her one-pager as a way to introduce the topic. So Crystal refers to strategic foresight as a powerful sense-making tool in the context of a world that is increasingly pluralistic, ambiguous, complex, and uncertain. Using that as a starting point, I want to just go around uh, to each of our speakers and get some opening remarks about you know, what your understanding is of foresight and what its role is in the context of the experiences that you've had. So can I uh, go to Jeanette first, please? Thanks, uh, everyone, for having me here. I would respond to Crystal's opening salvo by saying if you have four futurists in a room and you ask them what foresight is, you'll get four different answers. And I suspect that is exactly what's going to happen today. I've been doing foresight at the center for about 10 years now. 
And I have to say, my understanding of what strategic foresight is and how it intersects with other disciplines like complexity science has also evolved a lot over time. And where the center's understanding of foresight is today has landed on this frame that I quite like, a frame that we typically use to explain what is this animal of strategic foresight. It's called Scout Challenge and Grow, where scout refers to the work that you traditionally think of when you think of foresight, right? It's trying to find early warning signals of change, trying to understand how trends might develop and what implications these trends might have for, in my case, uh, policy decision makers in the government of Singapore, and what happens if these trends get bigger. Challenge starts to walk into kind of a translation territory where we borrow these notions of the future to challenge our understanding of today, how our current assumptions and mental models about how the world works might hold or not hold in the future. And if they don't hold, then what should we do about it? And finally, uh, GROW refers to the work that the center does to build the system's capability to do foresight at scale, not in depth, but everybody to understand the concept of what foresight does for policymaking, how they can connect foresight work to the daily practice of policymaking, because we firmly believe that the ability to anticipate the future is a critical capability for any public officer, not just in Singapore, I think, but in government. But in Singapore in particular, because of our size, our small open economy, how we make a living, and our richly multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-religious society, we have survived and thrived over the years in part because our leadership has always been able to take the long view. And we at the CSF are really committed to continuing this tradition within the public service. So Scout Challenge and Grow, in our view, collectively help us to reduce the frequency and amplitude of shocks to the system. To us, that is the goal of strategic foresight. By anticipating change, understanding how change might affect our mental models and assumptions, to help us think clearly about how the world is today, what the world could be tomorrow, and not see the world as we want it to be. It helps us to reaffirm either the course that we have chosen to take, or perhaps to determine what new course we might wish to set off on. We acknowledge that it's impossible um, no matter how good a futurist you are, to entirely eliminate surprise. The world is too large, it's too interconnected and too complex for us to understand it in its entirety. But by seeking out these signals of change as early as we can, where we can, and to hold a space for conversations about how these changes might affect us as a society, as an economy, as a people, then we understand a little bit better about what changes might affect our futures, and we can shrink that dreaded unknown, unknown space in Donald Rumsfeld's two by two, where black swans can hide. Thank you, Jeanette. I, I really like that idea of, it's not about prediction, but informing mental models. I think that's very helpful. Claire, let's go to you. I don't think there's much I could add to that. I do want to say that I have long salivated at how Singapore as a small island state has been able really to create a map for the rest of us who are concerned ourselves a lot with developing countries' mindset. For me, um, when I think about foresight thinking, because I've been so embedded in development planning, I very much focus on anticipatory or aspirational foresight. I have always been at the front end of deciding, okay, government says it wants to do X. It wants to create 
healthcare, it wants to create uh, education. And we have tended to spend a lot of time looking at the past and then designing accordingly. And so I came to Foresight with the idea that, well, we should be able to study the future the same way. Lo and behold, I ran into this thing called Foresight and Future Thinking. I was ecstatic because for the first time I could express to my colleagues what I, as an engineer, who also have happened to have a very artistic band. I write stories, I write plays, I perform. And so I was always able to kind of see the theater of what this thing could be acting out in the future. I didn't recognize it wasn't that's not the way everybody thinks. Now I had a label that, oh, I'm a futurist. I think ahead and I see very clearly. And so that gift and that skill of being able to stand in the future and look at what is around you. And we know that the future for each of us on this panel is different at every second, right? So as Janet said, we're not saying that we're gonna forecast and pinpoint that this is exactly going to happen. But our wonderful, marvelous brains understand by having done this exercise, you're training your brain to be more agile and adaptable. And so foresight thinking, and the reason why we need foresight thinking to create evolutionary leadership is that we're able to have leaders more adaptable and agile and indeed anticipatory. So I'll leave it there. Thank you, Claire. Yeah, again, this idea that it's there's not a single future, but plural futures, that's a key point, I think. Martin, let's go to you. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you to the organizer for uh, hosting this panel and this discussion and to have convened such a nice uh, group of fellow panelists to discuss these issues. I mean, just listening to you, I'm already learning a lot. Maybe the, the additional touch that I can give uh, to the discussion here is what we are trying to do as Chester and how we see anticipatory foresight into activity. We are a young organization that has been initiated by the Swiss federal government two years ago with this idea or this observation that we see that science and technology advances at an ever-increasing pace and that the Geneva ecosystem, international organization, multilateral organizations are not equipped with the tool first to understand what's coming on the horizon and then to translate that into a language they can use to enact the right uh, policies for the future. So what we do, and that's maybe a bit different from what my colleagues uh, just said, is that you really try to listen to the scientists, to talk to science in order to understand what might be in the horizon in a time frame of 10 to 25 years. And again, as was said, those are not exact predictions, but it's really in trying to set up the frame of your mind to think the future and to project yourself in the discoveries that are uh, around the horizon. One of the challenges that we saw while we were doing this is really difficulty, first of all, to get people to start anticipating you know, to start thinking about what the future may look like, and then also try to create this common language so to make sure that what you're anticipating then can be communicated to policymakers, to diplomats, to scientists, to citizens at large, because if you want your foresight to be efficient, well, you need to create this common room for understanding to make sure that your recommendations, that your visions also then are picked up, discussed, debated in the right setting. Something that we saw as well, I think it's also linked to the COVID uh, situation, is the understanding within the communities that foresight is something needed uh, grew. We see, for example, in Geneva that more and more international organizations, countries are setting up those foresight bodies and try also to decipher uh, the different trends that they see for the future. But uh, it's still a long way before the strategic foresight is mainstream into these organizations and people 
the foresighters or people that are doing this anticipatory analysis uh, understood the insight channeled into the right uh, processes so that they know that these institutions can then also act and take the measures that would then help the world prepare for future challenges and be more resilient. All right, good. Thank you, Martin. Uh, and we'll come back to those structures and proceeds uh, in a minute. Francisco, can I go to you? Yeah, I think that the concept, thanks very much to all of you and thanks for the invitation. I think that the concepts that have been put on the table already are extremely useful and allow us to really map out what is it that the whole business of anticipation, uh, planning, decision-making takes. I think that there are at least three steps. The first one is one of a strategic foresight. And I think Janet has described it extremely well. And also uh, Martin, in terms of the inputs that you require in order to simply to project the future, to explore, to scrutinize what may happen and what it may mean for you. I mean, that's the first step. There is a second one, which has to be informed by what Claire mentioned, by the aspirations, values, and so on. And that is when you have that mapped out, what is it that you are going to do with that? That's the second step is basically strategic planning, which my dear friend and mentor Rasakov used to call the structuring or making anticipatory decisions in situations that had not happened yet, but you anticipate if this materializes, then that is what I will do. So it's a decision that you make in advance. And then the third part is management. As time moves along, you transform those anticipatory decisions into actual decisions. And then they recede back into your past, in a sense. So you are always, if you are planning and managing, you are always making anticipatory decisions, transforming them into actual decisions. And as a result of that, revising the set of anticipatory decisions with the information that comes from strategic forecasting. So it's a continuous process of adapting and changing and so on. I've been very fortunate in my experience. I started in the 60s with the sort of the ones who started some of these things. One of my professors and mentors was the one who designed the Cloud of Rome, Hassan Ozbekan. I worked with quite of those other guys. And then over time, either as Chief of Strategic Planning of the World Bank in the late 80s, and more recently, until a month ago, as President of Peru, I had to go through that process continuously. So I've been able to see both sides, if you wish of that. And then into that framework, you can fit, for example, what are policies, you know, there are criteria for decision making, both anticipatory and actual decisions and so on. Then the interesting thing is something that was pointed out in the note by Christine Van Elst. All of this has been compressed in times. 20 years ago, we had the luxury of doing this really, if you can say it leisurely, I remember my visits to Singapore in the late 70s when I was with Lee Kuntat, for example, the director of CICER, the Singapore Standards and Research Institute, and how they were discussed and viewed in the future. But nowadays with the pandemic, as Martin has pointed out, you, you really have to do that in real time. I had to make decisions as president just a few months ago when the information was coming every day. This morning, I woke up very early yeah, and I saw three new papers on the effects of the vaccines on what may happen and so on. So I just want to say that the challenge for all of us is that this very leisurely concept of strategic forecasting, strategic planning and strategic management has been compressed 
in time. And we have to do all of that in real time. And this is a tremendous challenge, both for the strategic forecasters and for decision makers. Thank you, Francisco. I, I really like the uh, that three-part framework of, of forecasting, strategic planning, and, and then management. So thank you for that. We'll go back through the, the panel in reverse order uh, and allow you to elaborate a little bit more on, on what you've put into your, your one-pagers, uh, because there's just a lot of really good information in there, good ideas. And so I'd like to explore those a little bit, and then we'll go to questions from the audience and we are starting to get some questions so I encourage the audience to continue to put those in the chat. Uh, so Francisco let's stay with you. Um, you introduced this notion of paradoxical thinking uh, which I found really fascinating. Things like radical incrementalism, uh, strategic opportunism. I might personally add the notion of constructive ambiguity which is one that I've used in my career repeatedly. Can you elaborate on that? What's your thinking there? Well, thank you very much. I'll just follow on what I said, you know, when everything is compressed, you don't have the luxury separating things in ways that work in a sequential manner. You have to do everything at once. And this has to do with complexity, with real-time decision-making, with decision-making and their uncertainty and so on. And also with decision-making with very little information. And remember, I was mentioning the previous panel in which Elizabeth Jelling from Argentina was talking about data and how to transform data into information, information into knowledge, knowledge into wisdom. In order to do that in real time, you don't have the luxury of having a logical or a dialect dialectical processes going on. You need to have a paradoxical set of processes in your minds and the capacity to really think opposite things at the same time and not be paralyzed, as Scott Fitzgerald said many, many years ago. The test of a first-rate mind is to be able to think contradictory things and not be paralyzed by that. Right. And when we are doing this at the moment, what will be required is a complete change of our mindset, as several of you have uh, pointed out before, and the capacity to absorb contradictions without really being sort of stimulated or being just simply bewildered by it and being able to, for example, as uh, Jeanette pointed out, to think from in the present and in the future and go back and forth continuously and do it so fast that you appear to be at the same time in both places. So this is basically what you need to do in order to use effectively forecasting. And this requires a paradoxical mindset. You pointed out radical incrementalism. Why radical? Because you have to think boldly and looking into the future. Why incremental? Because the only way to get there is step by step and so on. Strategic opportunism, why? Because, you know, there are many possible options in the future because strategy is rational, systematic. Opportunism means that you'll be able to, using all that framework, to be able to just move quickly into an opportunity that presents itself without having been in your radar before. And then focus contextualism, because you have to deal with the here and now in a very specific situation here, but in a broader context with consequences and so on and so forth. I like very much the constructive ambiguity. I will add it to <laughs> of contradictory concepts. I also the question of deferred immediatism. We want all immediate gratification, but we have to defer immediate and at the same time not feel sort of frustrated and so on. Anyway, what I'm trying to point out is that 
following that very sort of a logical sequence from foresight to planning to management, we have to compress all of that and this requires a different mindset. And we are not normally trained to think paradoxically. And I think that will be the next challenge in strategic foresight, strategic planning and strategic management. Excellent, thank you, Francisco. Martin, back to you. I was really struck uh, in your one pager about this comment about institutional structures. I know in Canada, we often complain, at least at the federal level, that we're dealing with sort of Victorian era, you know, 19th century structures to deal with 21st century challenges. But I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on, on your thinking there. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, it's, it's the same here in Switzerland. You know, we are heavily decentralized and uh, our governance structure also uh, was set up in the 19th century. But what I was uh, trying to say in my think piece echoes what Francisco has been saying so far, uh, our capacity to absorb contradictions, the fact that we need to think in the present and in the future. And what I was referring to is if you, if you think about when and how our, our current institutions, international organizations were set up, this was a world of remarkable stability. Of course, we had crises, of course, we had challenges, but uh, they were not of the scale that we see now. Think about climate change, think about the COVID pandemic. Those are long-term changes that we see and they require us to be able to think today and the future together. Those challenges also require us not only to think today and to the present and the future together, but also to think local and global at the same time. And I think a lot of our institutions were not equipped with these tools. And, uh, and if, when I talk to people, in government, in the public sphere, you know, they often answer me, uh, well, this is very nice what you do, but uh, I need to solve the problem that we have now. How do you want me to think 25 years ahead when these scenarios could materialize? But this requires, as, we, as was said by Francisco and others in the discussion before, this mindset shifts and this ability of our civil servants, of our citizens, but also of the institutions to think both uh, today and tomorrow, to think both locally and globally and try to connect those different scales into policymaking and into daily work. And this is really, really, really hard to do. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Martin. Claire, uh, you obviously in your one pager bring up this notion of, of bringing foresight to the world of international development. But I, I was also struck by your use of the term, uh, the need for sort of evolutionary leadership intelligence. I wondered if you can elaborate on, on those ideas. Yeah, development um, foresight is really kind of where I got my start. And now that we're in COVID, I'm telling you, I'm even more convinced. Um, Francisca said something about this complex or uh, constructive um, ambiguity. And one of the things I talk a lot about, especially in my book, Smart Futures, is narrative thinking and storytelling as a way to kind of hold a paradox in your mind. We can hold paradoxes in mind when thinking about the story. So how do we, as scientists and engineers and technical people, try to think about, okay, we're building this now, but this could happen, this may not make the marketplace, or this could make the marketplace. At the same time, we wanted to do this, but it might cause this impact. And the best way to do that is be able to do that in a way in which you're storifying it. And so, Evolutionary intelligence to me as a leader is this, yes, we have all been trained to do, you know, managerial things, and we have tend to be trained along silo forms. The leaders that are in our global commons, and by global commons, I mean those people who are working in international development, corporations who have a lot of sway on how we use water and energy and food, and even NGOs 
we're also global and local, especially. They also have to have this mindset that goes beyond just what they're seeing and what it is that they are, quote unquote, supposedly responsible for and recognize that everything is part of a, a mesh. So it's a very complex layer. And so system thinking will be critical. We've got to have also what I call moral metrics. We're going to change our metrics to get to the level of how are we going to save ourselves from self-extinction? Every actor in that system has its own aspiration and ability to adapt or not. And so as planners and decision makers have to be aware of, okay, how are the actors playing out? Resilience, of course, because we have to be able to bounce back. How do we design for resilience, as we said, before it even happens? And finally, transformative use of technology. And I came to that acronym SMART simply because I was thinking, we have to get a lot of people moving very fast in the same direction. We need a quick idea. I said, okay, but everybody has a smartphone. What if everybody just start smart futures? And we begin to kind of make it popular language to just ask questions in a different way. So whether or not you're an engineer or sociologist or physicist or whatever, we're able to look at the problem with the same set of eyes that can hopefully see across different spectrums. So we have a wider spectrum, not just a regular spectrum, but we're seeing infrared levels of ideas and ultraviolet levels of ideas. So that's, I think, the fastest way to kind of explain what I'm trying to get at when I'm saying, let's use a smart features lens and framework to look at all the complexities. I love it. Ultraviolet level of seeing. That's great. <laughs> Jeanette. I feel like Claire and Francisco and Martin have basically articulated very, very neatly different chunks of what I had thought about in the one page that I'd written around this question of how foresight supports the taking of action, right? We all agree that foresight is not done for its own sake, but to support better choices, better decision-making, better pathways for the individual, but also for institutions and organizations. I was very struck by how Francisco laid out the connections between foresight and strategic planning and management, partly because in Singapore, that's one of the questions that we've been, we've been struggling with since we started doing foresight. How do we take the insights from the work that uh, my team does and carry that through to policymaking because they're done by different people? And part of that has been to set up new institutions so for the last six years, the Center for Strategic Futures has become part of the strategy group, and we sit next to our strategic planners. So there's a partnership there, a handshake, that I can take the work that my team does, run across the hall, or not even across the hall, just to the next room, and talk to someone who understands what that means for a sector in our industry or a segment of our society. Uh, and that has helped a lot with driving action. Also, in terms of building skills to respond to crises, right, Francisco, you were saying that everything has become very accelerated. You feel like you have to make new decisions all the time. But in a sense, when we do foresight correctly and we help people to rehearse the future that they have not yet lived, we're also teaching people the skills of dealing with strategic ambiguity, right, of dealing with uncertainty. How do you make decisions when you don't have enough information about what is going to happen? And we've built that habit of mind into our decision makers so that we're a little bit more comfortable with moving forward when we don't have 100% of the information or the situation is unknowable or when our actions change the situation on the ground and we have to respond to that. Those are ways in which strategic foresight can really help to shift policymaking, shift action 
And Claire mentioned another big way that we think that foresight adds to policymaking conversations, which is to give everyone a common vocabulary, right? When we talk about the future, what do we mean? What are our strategic priorities? What are our greatest fears? What are our biggest dreams? We now have a shared language of narratives to talk about these uncertainties. And that helps a lot when it comes to policy planning. Absolutely. I mean, that common lexicon is, is key. I also, I, I was struck by your one pager where, um, I mean, you've got kind of a three-part framework there of looking ahead, thinking afresh, and then taking action. And, and that taking action part is so critical because I'm sure we, we were all familiar with foresight exercises that led to a report that got put on a shelf and, and didn't really inform action. So, so that's key. I also, um, Again, you mentioned you know the structures and being able to talk to the the right people. It's become a bit of a truism, and in fact, we even heard this again yesterday uh, by one of the panelists. The success of science advice depends more on relationships than on structures, which is clearly true. But I also think that that underplays the role that structures can play in helping to facilitate those relationships. So, to that point, I'd like to actually go to one of the questions now from our audience. Rhoda Jennings asks, in seeking out signals of what is on the horizon, how do you decide who you should talk to and how do you structure the conversation? How do you manage the wealth of information available and locate the information that is actually needed? So I'm just going to open the floor for any of you to weigh in on, on this question of how do you decide who to talk to? How do you structure those conversations? And then how do you kind of sift through all that wealth of information? I'm going to jump in and then get it started. For me, if I'm talking to, let's say, a particular audience, when I'm looking at the signals of change, I try to go as broad as possible. But typically, since a lot of my work has been to support an industry in like a small island or an industry that's global, I look at always local, what's local to that space, national or regional, and then also a global. And that's just in how the thing is situated in the human use. And I also look at the science itself. What is adjacent? What is the most adjacent thing? And then I also look at the far off thing that is most implausible thing. So now that people are also using AI enabled foresight, the question is, how do you decide <laughs> what in the AI you should program? What should you program into the AI? Because I'm of the opinion that even if you use an AI to enable you to read more things, 3,000 things as opposed to 30 things or 40 things, you still have to be able to understand what did the AI actually find and what are the rules that you're going to use to, to make that decision. And so I think we need to all be mindful that I think the human mind can still make some leaps of imagination mm -hmm. that I think come with practice. I think some of it, as you say, is inside. There's a sort of feeling in your body that you kind of go with when you are sensing. And so that tension between using AI to support your work and then also using your body to sense when that excitement buzz goes off and your body starts to quiver. It's almost like your exoconsciousness. And I'm so excited to see that exoconsciousness as a way of working is coming on stream now in the whole transhumanism movement because we need to borrow some of those what seems as far off ideas to help us inform how we as planners are using all our intelligences to make that decision in the moment. Others want to weigh in on that? 
So I just have one little thing to add to what Claire said. By the way, I completely agree with what she said, especially about the kind of using all your senses to make a judgment. Oh, actually, a couple of things. The first is the, the rather more cerebral one about filtering through your understanding of what you think your audience needs. If you understand the system you're working with, the questions that they grapple with every day, then part of that extrasensory like tingling is understanding when you see something that has a direct impact. Whether you understand that consciously or subconsciously, you'll see that that signal affects the system that you understand and that you work with. And I suspect that's part of that buzz that you get. The second thing that I, I try to use is to talk to people who disagree with how I think about the future as much as possible. Right? It's part of this challenging the mental models and assumptions piece of work that we do. I think the day that we stop borrowing other people's thoughts to challenge our own is the day we should hang up our shingle as futurists. Yes, absolutely. Good message. Martin? Yeah, just two small points, uh, echoing what Claire and Janet said. The first one is on the, on, on the use of AI in foresight and anticipation. And uh, here my take is, of course, AI is very good at giving you knowledge, at crunching numbers and crunching texts. But anticipating is something that's profoundly human or biological. And we think we're quite far off to seeing an anticipator or somebody anticipating being replaced by an AI system or machine, just because it takes a lot of skills. It takes all your senses, as you say, Janet. You need to be able to reach out to the dreams or to some of the features that uh, machines are not able to do yet. The importance of considering as well weak signals and try to open the futures, the possibility of futures, but we might not think at first sight, you know, we all have our habits, our thinking habits, but we need to try to have the ability to listen, to be challenged, to listen to the work signals and things that you may think might not happen, but then take a big one in the future. Thank so you. this open future thinking is a critical skill that we need to all to have. Let's go to another question. This one from uh, Gabby Lombardo. She asks, uh, we understand that certain scientific disciplines have been crucial for addressing future challenges in the current crisis. Would foresight literature be enough to change methods of national funding allocation, like the traditional accounting systems, which have been in place for over 60 years, uh, to redirect funding to more socially focused research? And maybe more broadly, we could address the role of social sciences and humanities, because often foresight is, has been more traditionally associated with the natural sciences and engineering. So anyone want to weigh in on the question from Gabby? Well, I, I would challenge the assumption that foresight is something that deals with natural sciences and technical sciences only, because, you know, if foresight is about making sense of the future society, of our future as humans, then social sciences and humanities are pretty much linked to the foresight activity. Absolutely. And the way we try to anticipate, you know, science and diplomacy, it's really about first asking the scientists from all kinds of disciplines, from the social sciences to the hard sciences about what might be in the horizon, but then also embedding that into uh, sense-making, which is uh, social sciences, into, into geopolitics, again, international relations, again, uh, social sciences. So I think both things are pretty much intertwined. Absolutely. Francisco? Yes, if you let me add, uh, uh, you know, first of all, on the on the first question of who to talk to, how to shift it, I think that the key question now is not so much who to talk to, how to see, because we have enough of that. The main thing now comes to the question of interpretation of all those informations in the local context. 
And that to me is a skill that needs to be developed, how to interpret all of that. I mean, many years ago, I wrote a paper on techno-economic intelligence for development. And one of the things I anticipated there in the early 80s is that we were in the process of getting an information deluge, in, again, in order to, and what would be required would be more capacity to interpret. And on the point that Martin made, I mean, these weak signals, I mean, you are absolutely right. Uh, Fred Emery and Eric Trees many years ago coined the phrase, the early detection of emergent processes. And these are precisely the weak signals. How is it that we can see an emergent process in a very weak signal, and so they can detect it early, and then do what Janet has pointed out in terms of seeing what options is opens and closes, and then what Claire has pointed out in terms of being able to construct narratives about that and how those narratives that open up those new signals or new information change the way in which we behave and so on. Make three points. The first one is that we're in the process of a major epochal change. I think that there's two signals, only two, and you mentioned artificial intelligence and so on. There are so many things changing now at present, but there are two things. We have two catastrophes that are really coming to us. The very accelerated catastrophe of COVID-19, and the second, the not so slow motion catastrophe of climate change. And these two are just signals, and not weak signals, Martin, but really very strong signals that we are in the process over the next 20 or 30 years of changing completely the way in which humanity lives and relates to each other. And uh, you really need the capacity to be able to understand that, to anticipate in a very, and you know, I wish we had time to explain you, for example, what is it that we did with the lack of information to face the challenges of COVID-19. I came into government just about nine months ago. We had no vaccines, a runaway second wave, and in eight months, we were able to secure close to 100 million doses of vaccines and change and multiply by seven our oxygen supply and so on. The second thing is one that Martin reminded me and Claire also pointed out very clearly, is that we have a very global order, which I would like to call a fractured global order. An order that puts us in contact with each other instantly everywhere, all over the world, but at the same time opens up uh, divisions, separates us, and we have to deal paradoxically with this fractured global order, which demands institutional redesign, which demands something which hasn't been mentioned at the international level, the increased production of international public goods. And we do not have the institutions to do that. We tried to propose something 20 years ago, but it was drowned in a different uh, set of ideas and concepts. And finally, I think that I would like to highlight what Claire says. We need to develop sort of coherent narratives that are from our own, going to come from our own perspective, from our local points of view, but embrace the global as well, embrace all the information. And those narratives that we build are the ones that are going to guide implicitly the decisions that we make and guide the way in which you use strategic forecasting, anticipation, strategic foresight, and so on and so forth. Thank you, Francis. We have, unfortunately, uh, I mean, we do still have many other questions in the chat, but we are running out of time. So I want to give uh, each of the other uh, speakers a chance for uh, sort of a closing remark and uh, maybe a key takeaway message. So uh, Claire, can I go to you? 
Yes, yes, yes. I would say what, this has been an exciting conversation. I do wish it could go on for some more. My takeaway is that we certainly should be having more of these conversations because we do need to construct this new global institution that can also work local at the same time. And in the case of the Smart Futures concept and certainly what I think we can learn from the practice of what Singapore has been doing, I certainly think that as a small island state, they really have a practice that they can share with the world. So I'm hoping coming out of this, because I like to say, what is the point of this exercise? Coming out of this, perhaps the INSA group or the Canadian group that put this together can really help us to have a conversation first, the small island developing states with Singapore as sort of a guide to have a conversation just like this with a smaller group of people in the planning agencies who need to be hearing these kinds of things. Okay, thank you, Claire. Uh, Jeanette? I have to say, I've learned a lot from the, my fellow panelists today, the way that we all think about the work that we do as Foresight, similarly, but also differently, and how you've given me new language to think about the ways that the team, my team works. I think what has come through very clearly for me is that Foresight is really about the power of human agency. Right? Why do we try to see the future? Why do we try to peer into the midst of the future and determine what icebergs may loom or what opportunities may appear? It's because we want to be able to steer our own course. We want to be able to thrive, even in uncertain and ambiguous times. And we think foresight is one of those tools that will allow us not to be at the mercy of the winds and waves of change. Um, and that led me to think then, well, we didn't really talk about it, but think about what are the real skills that we need to navigate life in the 21st century. And I think all of us did touch briefly on this as we went along. The humility of thought, willingness to be wrong, to learn from other people, willingness to innovate and iterate, maybe the radical incrementalism that Francisco was talking about, right? Dare to dream, but also try step by step. And also a deep sense of ourselves and what we want, because that allows us to chart the course around all these icebergs that, that may lie in our future. Thank you. Uh, Martin, a brief final word? Thank you for this very interesting and uh, great conversation. And hopefully uh, we'll be able to take that, that further as was, uh, as was mentioned. Thank you. And let me just add my own thanks to each of you panelists uh, for your insights. Uh, I also want to thank the, the organizers and particularly Christiane and Grant. And, uh, and thank you, the audience, for listening. Stay safe and uh, be smart. The International Network for Government Science Advice is the leading global network for those interested in the dynamics of research-informed public policy making. For more content, news and opportunities from the Science Policy Interface, join the INGSA network for free at ingsa.org. That's I-N-G-S-A And join us again soon for more great minds and great conversations.